Hi, everybody. You're listening to the SEA Podcast, a show brought to you by members of the Specialty Coffee Association, featuring talks and lectures from SEA events around the globe. My name is Vicente Partida. On the podcast today is Peter Giuliano, SEA's Research Officer and Director of RICO Symposium. Peter, how are you? Morning, Vicente. I'm well. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for being on the podcast. Sure. All right. So before we get to this week's episode, we're, we're celebrating RICO this week, and RICO's in its 10th anniversary. What are you looking forward to this week? Yeah. So we're coming together in, in Seattle this week, and, and, and like always, we're there to talk about the biggest, um, most important issues facing specialty coffee. But this being the 10th anniversary, we're taking a special look at the past decade and seeing what emerged that was so important over the past decade, what we did about it in the, in the past decade, and what that can tell us about the next decade. We're really spending most of our time looking forward and seeing what are the challenges going to be in the coming years and how we can mobilize the coffee industry to deal with those challenges. That's great. So what can RICO delegates look forward to this week? Well, um, we're doing the talks that that we've done for, for many years, which are there to inform um, these important leaders in coffee. But what we're doing different this year is we're getting together in discussion groups to set the agenda for specialty coffee. And that is taking responsibility as our companies in our communities, as our, um, our, our groups working together to actually take action, to deal with, um, some of the these big issues that we're um, facing in, in specialty coffee and deciding intentionally, making some intentional choices about where we're going to focus our energy and how we're going to deploy ourselves to make coffee continuously better over the next years and decades to come. Peter, you've been working on Rico Symposium for 10 years now, is that correct? Yeah, since the beginning. Since the beginning. So you started Symposium before it was even called RICO Symposium. That's right. Yeah, we started it. Um, it was a group of people that came together that realized that we needed a forum to to really address these, um, these uh, big uh, industry-wide challenges that we face in specialty coffee. What's that been like for you to see Symposium grow into what it is today, 10 years later? It's well, it's been amazing, and it, you know, it was it was it was actually a kind of a uh, we got off to a really big start. The the year that that uh, that we started um, that's the symposium was the same year that the economy crashed in the United States. Hmm. Um, so everybody was like really concerned about that. It was also the year that Ethiopian Commodity Exchange started the ECX. That's right. Um, and we had some presentations in that first year. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Peter Baker, um, a climate, a person that works on climate and coffee, really rang the bell about what the implications of climate change on coffee were, was going to be. And then also at that same meeting, um, Dr. Tim Schilling uh, presented some of his research that he had done, collaborative research that had happened in, in Rwanda. And both of those things came together to establish World Coffee Research, which is, of course, one of the most important and 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 salient um, uh, initiatives that's happening in coffee today. So it's really clear that uh, that this the conference came at just the right time to um, bring coffee leaders together and give them the space to collaborate on solutions that are that are going to transform um, the phases the specialty coffee industry. Okay, so this week 
on the SA Podcast. We're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Rico Symposium. And I've asked you this week to select your favorite recorded talk from the last 10 years of Rico Symposium. You've actually chosen two Rico talks, both of them by Dr. Aaron Davis. Dr. Aaron Davis is a botanist and senior research leader of plant resources at the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. In his first talk that we'll listen to from 2013, uh, it was recorded at Rico Symposium in Boston. Aaron takes us on a journey through his discovery and exploration of coffee species in the wild. From his introduction to coffee by a colleague to his co-discovery of 20 new coffee species, all the way to his analysis of Arabica coffee's evolution and possible extinction. That was from 2013. And in the second talk that we'll listen to from 2016, recorded at Rico Symposium in Atlanta, Aaron follows up on his 2013 presentation and presents the findings of his research on the effects of climate change and how it's reshaping coffee production. So Peter, why did you choose these two talks for the podcast? Yeah, it's hard to say um, they're my favorite. Uh, it's a, of course, it's an impossible task to, to, to pick any favorites. And, but I chose these because they're um, emblematic of, of the way that we uh, talk about things and develop action at, uh, at Rico Symposium. But also because, um, as I mentioned before, this is a topic that's evolved over the past decade, you know, from our very earliest awareness that, that climate change was having an, a strong effect on, on coffee and to Aaron's really groundbreaking work on at the center of origin of coffee, southwestern Ethiopia, actually documenting the effect on the wild population of coffee, um, going into some history about exactly where coffee came from and how it's evolved and, and how it continues to um, develop as, it, as, it, uh, as we cultivate it throughout the world. And, um, and then uh, secondly, a couple of years later, talking about exactly what a climate resilient coffee economy looks like, um, what kind of steps we can take from a genetic perspective, from an economic perspective to, um, to preserve coffee. And of course, this is the biggest issue we face really as a species is how we're going to, how are we going to deal with the changing climate? And that's no different for coffee. Every coffee farmer is put at risk by, uh, by climate change. Every coffee business person is, is put at risk by changes in the, in the, uh, and coffee supply and coffee quality because of climate change. So it, it is, it really is a sort of um, consistent, never changing topic that we look at. And so I chose Aaron's talks because it was in many ways, our deepest and most informative look. Aaron's first talk was also kind of the first biggest um, uh, symposium talk that we had on YouTube. Um, uh, thousands. It was the first one that got thousands of views, um, and right. so it really hit a hit a nerve within the within the coffee community and the larger community as well. And it really informed um, everybody as to as to what was happening in terms of climate and coffee. So, why don't we get started with the podcast? That sounds great. Should we do that? Yeah. All right. So here is Dr. Aaron Davis in 2013 speaking at Rico Symposium in Boston. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you. So where does my coffee story begin? Well, it actually starts in London in 1995. I was a recent 
PhD graduate, and I was having tea, sorry, not coffee, I was having a cup of tea, I'm blaming Boston and coffee leave for us for that. But, um, and I sat next to somebody called Diane Brideson, and Diane Brideson, I was to find out, was a world authority on wild coffee species. And as a rather pertinent acolyte, I asked her the question, how many coffee species are there? And she looked at me, uh, slightly glazed over, and said, I don't know. It's not actually that I don't know, it's that nobody knows. I said, OK, that's fair enough. Uh, what about Arabica? Where does that come from? Where does it grow? What's its natural range? Another glazed look. We didn't know. Shortly afterwards, I went to Borneo and New Guinea and spent some years there. When I returned to Kew, I was handed a, a research proposal by Diane Brideson, and she sort of threw this back in my face and said, you ask those questions, you give me the answers. So in 1997, I found myself in Madagascar. I must admit, a little bit clueless, no background at all of coffee. My first mission to Madagascar was very exciting, but a little bit unproductive. And then I met Frank. This is Frank Rakutana Solo, a Malagasy botanist. The emphasis was on Madagascar, because Madagascar was a big unknown. Were there five species, 10 species, 100 species? Those questions simply hadn't been answered. Anyway, I teamed up with Frank, we spent the next 15 years exploring Madagascar, going to isolated localities, north, south, east, and west. And what did we find? We found an enormous variety of coffee species, a huge amount of genetic diversity. Some already catalogued, but a lot completely unknown to anybody, apart from perhaps some indigenous people living in the areas. These slides show on the left, Coffea richardii. This is the largest coffee cherry in the world. Coffea toshii is a species we not only discovered, but described as new to science in 2006. This is the smallest coffee cherry in the world, some three millimeters in diameter. But it wasn't until we went to the forests of western Madagascar, the dry, or the seasonally dry deciduous forests, that things really started to get exciting. Here we have two species from a limestone areas, and they are both adapted to water dispersal rather than animal dispersal. They may look very similar. They both have these winged fruits, but in fact, they're not actually closely related, which really amazed us. For me, the most exciting species was Coffea ambongensis, known from only one collection in 1840, then rediscovered by Frank in 1999. It has a pear-shaped fruit, and inside the fruit is a coffee bean, and that coffee bean has a, a brain-like appearance. It just so turns out that this is the largest coffee bean in the world, the largest coffee bean species. Arabica is on the right for comparison. I think that's Blue Mountain. Anyway, an enormous coffee bean. I've no idea what it tastes like. Sorry about that. <laughs> so by the end of 2010, what we had 
achieved with partners in other parts of the world was a doubling of the species diversity of coffee. So we went from something like 60 species to 100. The center of diversity, my boss was right, Diane was right, it is Madagascar, nearly 60 species. We still have another 10 species to describe for Madagascar. And then Africa with around 40 species, and some species in the Mascarene Islands. That was all well and good, but to really understand Arabica, to understand Robusta and the other cultivated species, another fundamental question needs to be asked, and that is, how are coffee species related to one another? All I want to say here is that within the tree of life, we are all related to coffee. We actually share 50% of our DNA with coffee plants, which is great news. Unfortunately, we share 70% with the fruit fly. <laughs> In 2007, we produced an updated family tree, genealogy for coffee species. This was based on all our collecting in Africa and Madagascar, but also in Asia. And you can see from this tree of life for coffee that there's a good correspondence with geography. So we have groups that correspond to different parts of the distribution. So we have a West African group, which includes Robusta, Coffea canophora, Liberica group. In fact, we have two groups within West Africa, a Robusta alliance and a Liberica alliance. We have an East African group, and we have all those species from Madagascar in the Madagascar group. One really interesting outcome of this study was that the genus Silanthus, which was always known to be a close coffee relative, actually was a coffee. So lots of very strange species from Africa, also from Asia, that people thought maybe were coffee, but they actually look very, very different, particularly coffee amanii, on the left here, they are actually coffee species. Inside the fruits are coffee beans, and if you roast those beans, they smell like coffee. If you drink them, they taste like battery acid. Anyway. <laughs> so effectively, we went from 103 species, looking at the genetics, we were able to add another 20 species. But also, we increased the natural distribution of wild coffee species right the way across Asia and even to Australia. And I can tell you the Australians were very happy to have their own coffee species, Coffea brassii. So now let's focus on Arabica, let's focus on origin. Where does it come from? When did it arrive? Back to the genealogy, back to the family tree. It was always suggested that Coffea eugenioides and Coffea robusta were the parents of Arabica. And what we did by analyzing all the known coffee species at that time was to actually say for certainty that these were the parents. So we know Robusta. Eugenioides is also called Nandi coffee, and it's also another cultivated coffee. Here are the two parents, Robusta and Eugenioides. Eugenioides is a narrow-leaved, small-leaved species, and, well, we know Robusta very well. And together, their holy union gave us the gift of Arabica. And if you look at the two parents, it looks very much intermediate between the two. But does that make sense in a geographical context? Yes, the genetics tells us the story. What about the geography? Well, it very much does. If you look at this distribution map for Robusta, 
The white dots are the actual recorded sites for Robusta. The intense yellow and green colors are the modeled predicted distribution for Robusta. If you look at the Arabica zone, the home of Arabica in the circle, there's a prediction for Robusta to occur in southwest Ethiopia. If you look at Eugenioides, which is a Rift Valley species, a high altitude species, there again, there's a prediction for southern Ethiopia. Arabica. We have two circles here. The smaller circle is where Arabica occurs. The larger circle gives us an indication where Eugenioides and Robusta exist in this day and age. So we have two theories on the origin of Arabica. One, that it originated in Ethiopia and the parents became extinct. Two, it originated outside Ethiopia. I know there's an Ethiopian colleague in the audience, but it's possible that Arabica actually originated in somewhere like South Sudan or even the Congo. That's historical. What about today? This is a map of the actual and predicted distribution of wild Arabica coffee. And as you can see, it's restricted to southwestern Ethiopia and southern Ethiopia, either side of the Rift Valley. It's also found in small numbers on the Boma Plateau in South Sudan and a very doubtful locality in Mount Marsabit in northern Kenya. And the genetic data, but also the environmental data, suggests that it's introduced in that region. So what do those forests look like? What do those coffee forests that house wild coffee actually look like? Well, I was there last week, probably actually this time last week, in those forests. Here's a picture here depicting the higher range for Arabica in Ethiopia. It's a humid, moist forest, a rainforest, between altitudes of 1,000 and 2,000 meters. The big tree is clearly not coffee, but if you've got very good eyesight, you can see the coffee plants underneath that shade tree. And unlike South Sudan, or unlike many of the places in Madagascar, what you see is that the forests are packed with Arabica plants. We estimated something like 20,000 plants per hectare. Huge, huge diversity. There's also a good range of age classes. This is my colleague Jenny, who's holding an Arabica plant, which is probably about 100 years old. And this is what the wild plants do. They get to a certain age, and then they just fall over and, and, uh, and die. So we're all interested in supply. We're interested in taste profiles. We're interested in sustainability. What is the value of those wild Arabica forests in Ethiopia? If you look at the genetic data, and some of it's published, some of it's not, what you see is the diversity in those forests is enormous, absolutely enormous. Each forest area has its own distinct range of genetic variation, but also there's good evidence to show that those populations have, have mixed. There's some gene exchange between those populations. The other key thing is there are lots of seedlings, and those seedlings supply standing genetic variation, and that standing variation enables adaptation, and that is, is very important. Compare that with the history of coffee dissemination since it came out of Ethiopia from the 1500s onwards. So we know that Arabica came out of Ethiopia via the Yemen to Europe to Southeast Asia and then was disseminated to coffee-growing areas all around the world. The red ellipses show that when that happened, 
it did so from very few propagules, very few plants. In the case of Typica, just one plant. So what happens is you have this massive genetic variation in Ethiopia, and then within the, a few hundred years, a narrowing, a very drastic narrowing in genetic variation. I've tried to make an estimate of how much genetic variation there is in the plantations of the world. This is a pie chart. <laughs> I had to fiddle with this slide to actually get it to show the 0.03%. I'm just joking, but it looks like that the plantations of the world, around the world, whether it's South America or Southeast Asia, have less than 1% of the genetic variance that's in Ethiopia. But why is that important? Why should we care? So what? We've got our we've got our crops. We've seen this morning, and in other uh, symposia, we've seen that there are problems because of this narrow genetic base. When you look at the history of coffee cultivation, it is punctuated with the industry going back to the wild and taking genetic resources to patch up its business. So here we have a nice image from the archives at Kew of Ceylon. And there's a gentleman here with his nice, new, massive, healthy Liberica plant. And in the background, there's poor old Arabica dying of coffee leaf rust. But whether it's the 1800s, 1900s, there are many historical stories of, of the industry going back and taking genetic resources. And we know, as recent as 1904, the industry went back to Africa took Robusta, took it to Southeast Asia, and from there we have the Robusta industry uh, that we have today. So there's huge potential in those wild forests for Arabica. But let's not forget, we've got 125 other species. Massive potential for crop development, for breeding. Let's also not forget but of those 125 species, many are used to make coffee, not by industry, but by local people. Some of them have good cup quality. Many of them have interesting traits. I've only seen coffee leaf rust in wild forests once, and that was in Ethiopia. So who knows what the potential is for disease resistance. Now let's move on to the, the dramatic part, extinction. Is that a reality for Arabica? In 2006, we did a study looking at 100-odd species of coffee, and we made an assessment of risk concerning extinction. And what we found was nearly 70% of coffee species are in danger of extinction. 10% are critically endangered, which means they could go extinct within 10 years. I was in Madagascar two years ago, we refound Coffea minutiflora, the world's smallest flowering coffee, and the area of forest it occurs in is about the size of this room. So some serious, serious threats. What are those threats? The main threat is land use change, conversion of natural forests, natural vegetation, for human use, such as pastoralism or, or crop production. Some of it, as in Ethiopia, is historic. It happened hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago. But as we saw in South Sudan on the World Coffee Research Trip, some of it's very recent. And then we have climate change. And land use change and climate change act together antagonistically. 
We know Coffee Arabica operates within a narrow band of environmental conditions. Move up a degree, you affect taste. Move up two degrees, you affect production. Three degrees, mortality. Your plants are dead. In 2012, we did another study. There was so much in the press about climate change and not much science behind it. So we decided to do a study of wild Arabica. I won't go into the details, but I will say that the, the outcome of the modeling is profoundly negative. Best case scenario, a 40% reduction in those wild populations. Worst case scenario, 99%. That's the modeling. Huge media attention. It, it trended on Twitter for at least, at least a couple of hours, at least a day or so. But a, a lot of people were very interested in this story. I must say it was, it was misreported in, in many cases. But what's the reality behind the modeling? What's the reality behind the hype? If you look at recorded temperature changes in Ethiopia over the last 40 years, you'll see that the temperatures have increased by nearly a third of a degree a decade. Go back to what I said about the tolerances of Arabica cultivation. It doesn't take much to work out that there are issues. But what's happening on the ground? The World Coffee Research trip of 2012 found that although the forest in South Sudan was still there, the plants were suffering. And that's likely to be due to climate change. Ethiopia, April 2013, last week. We visited areas that are optimum for wild coffee forests and coffee production. And that's fine. But in the marginal areas, there were some indications that the plants are being stressed. The farmers are also telling us that their wet season has, has decreased, and that the number of hot days has also increased. So a bit of scientific evidence, a bit of anecdotal evidence. What can we do about it? The objective of our 2012 study was not to scare people, but was to try to understand and manage risk. Looking at this slide, you might think that's a natural forest. It is, in fact, an intensive coffee cultivation system. Not by South American standards, but look at the canopy. It looks like a natural forest. And indeed, there are many species of birds and monkeys and mammals living in those forests. Let's look at it from under the canopy. There are our coffee trees under cultivation. This is a more intensive system, but you still maintain that canopy. You're still maintaining those natural systems. So for Ethiopia, I think there are possibilities. We have a natural, a more or less semi-natural environment. The ecological processes are still there. Dispersal, pollination. Secondly, we have an, a financial reason to mitigate. We can say to farmers, replant buffer zones, replant core zones, provide upslope migration for wild coffee species because there's a financial incentive or they can produce coffee within their system and at the same time mitigate against climate change in a number of ways. Meetings I had in Addis also filled me with some optimism. There's the political will to, to make change. Let's also remember that coffee production in Ethiopia, which is mostly Arabica, provides nearly a third of their GDP. So of course there's a financial imperative. So if you ask me whether I'm confident about mitigating climate change, I would say no. If you ask me whether I'm optimistic, very much so. 
And I'll end there. Thank you very much for listening. That was Aaron Davis speaking at RICO Symposium in Boston in 2013. Next, we're going to listen to Aaron's RICO talk in Atlanta in 2016. Here is Aaron Davis. Talking climate change, it came onto the agenda probably about uh, a decade ago and was viewed very much as something that was going to happen and it was very much on the margins of people's um, thoughts about sustainability and resilience. And then there was the extended wet period in Central America, followed by drought in Brazil, and that moved climate change, I think, really onto center stage um, in the sustainability uh, agenda. Essentially, there are two questions that we need answers to, and which we don't have yet. The first one is, what's going to happen across, say, this century? And then once we know that, we can answer the second question, is what are we going to do about it? So are we facing a rather grisly Armageddon? Or are we looking at something that's perhaps more benign and something that's more manageable than we might expect it to be? So when I stood in front of uh, the audience at the SEAA in Boston in 2012, I talked about some of the work we'd done on climate change for wild Arabica. I won't go into detail, but what I will tell you about is what happened afterwards. And there was quite a bit of media attention, and it was very interesting to hear the, uh, people's questions um, and responses to the work we'd done. One of the things I wasn't expecting was the question of, okay, that's very interesting, blah, 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 but what are you going to do about it? And that really, really threw us. What, well, actually, what would we do about it? We've got an idea of what's going to happen, but what would we do about it? And more specifically, they weren't talking about wild coffee, they were talking about coffee production. So this got us thinking. Um, the team sat down and we threw some ideas around, and we came up with a, a basic idea of what that might look like. And then in November 2013, we got the opportunity to put some of those ideas to the test. We started a, initially an 18-month project, a very short-term duration project, and there was a big, big agenda. How would we make the coffee economy of Ethiopia climate resilient across this century? Which is quite a big ask. But we set the agenda, so we've got ourselves to blame. Why Ethiopia? I probably don't need to tell uh, you why. It's, it's a major coffee-producing country. It supports the livelihoods of around 12 to 50 million farmers. It provides a huge proportion of the country's export earnings and really drives the economy of this, of this country. We were very fortunate, um, fortunate for us, but not for the hard commodity sector. There was a downturn in mining and we found ourselves with a team of people who, who had good skills to convert to the soft commodity sector. And they brought to the table uh, their ideas and expertise and also uh, some new approaches 
to, to tackling and looking at this issue, both in the UK, but also, of course, in Ethiopia. So we had an, an idea of what we would do, how we would up our game in terms of our approach to our answering the, the two major questions. So there was a technology side, which I won't go into, and then there was the on-the-ground field-based side of the study, and that, from the very onset, we considered was a very key element to make sure that we collected the right data, but also to test all our ideas to see whether they worked. One of the things we didn't intend to do was question farmers, but it's something that became critical to what we were doing. And we also, this isn't our expertise, of course, but we also <laughs> consumed a lot of coffee. We had that roasted by uh, London-based roasters and evaluated to see how that tied in with coffee growing and climate change in Ethiopia. And from November, December onwards, we found ourselves in a deep immersion phase. What do I mean by that? The team was totally dedicated to this project um, in a very intensive way uh, right up until more or less uh, today. So it's been an intensive period, but we've learned a huge amount um, about this issue um, in Ethiopia. So what are the outcomes? What's the coffee landscape Ethiopia going to look like across this century? Now, as a scientist, you question everything. You question what the people do, and you question even what you do yourselves. One of the key issues, I think, and um, baselines, if you like, for this, for this um, project was that Ethiopia has experienced a really drastic change in its climate in the recent past. So when you look at the data from reliable sources, you see an increase per decade of around a third of a degree. And that adds up over several decades to become quite a significant increase in temperature. So what we did is we re-evaluated that. We, we took climate station data from 30 climate stations. We reanalyzed the data, but specifically for coffee-grown regions. And what we found was that, that those increases were realistic, were repeatable for several of the major coffee-growing regions of Ethiopia. But worse than that, in combination with the increase in temperature, was a decrease in rainfall. So you have this uh, double whammy of um, climate-related issues potentially influencing coffee. One of the very interesting aspects, I think, of climate change is that for many crops, there's no data. So one of the early conversations we had is, where are our melting glaciers? Where are our sea level rises? Where's our metrics? Where's our equivalents? And we found that from interviewing farmers. So Ethiopian farmers tend to, uh, their family farms tend to stay in the same places through many, many generations. And what we found, that talking to, to um, the, the father or the mother, and then when they told us about their fathers, and their fathers' fathers, they were able to give us an idea of how their farming environment has changed since, say, the 1930s. So in northern Ethiopia, for example, uh, for example we uh, encountered a family whose, uh, whose forefathers had harvest every single year. Um, then a generation forward, that went down to two years and three years, and in the present day, they have a harvest every five years. 
So what we were able to deduce from that, and it's already been mentioned this morning, is that climate change happens slowly. Yes, you get tipping points, but it's a slow process. It's been happening for a long time. We also looked at plants, independent of farmers or any humans, just to see what their response was to climate change. And one of the things the modeler said to me was, in the areas that we predict will be influenced by climate change, when you go there, you should start to see that. And that's exactly what we experience. So here we have an example of quite severe climate stress towards the end of the dry season. But in some cases, there was very severe environmental stress, to the point where plantations that had been productive for many, many decades were completely dead. And that's a recent phenomenon. So they have gone over the tipping point. So what does the landscape look like in general? What are the predictions going from the, the recent past, from the 1960s, say, to the end of the century? Well, they're quite alarming. And what you see is a drastic change in the coffee landscape of Ethiopia across this century. And you can get some indication of that from the maps behind you. So we see large areas dis completely disappearing. It's not just related to altitude either. Going forward even further, towards the end of the century, even more drastic changes, but you'll notice some new areas emerge. New potential coffee growing areas emerge that weren't there before. Let's go right to the end of the century. You can see even more drastic change, but I want you to focus on the dark green, because it's the dark green which identifies those areas which are excellent for coffee growing. And you'll notice that is the part of the landscape that's most severely impacted. What does that look like in terms of area? These circles represent the area that is actually suitable for coffee growing across this century. And what you'll see from this is a general, quite alarming decline in the area where it's actually suitable, I should say, for growing coffee. What that detail doesn't show you is the more drastic reduction in the area that's absolutely perfect for coffee growing. However, when you look at the potential for coffee production across these time periods, you'll see that compared to what we've got and what will happen if we do nothing, if we make the right decisions and the right interventions are made, coffee production in Ethiopia is fully resilient and sustainable if the investment is made in the right places and at the right times. So what am I talking about here? It's a difficult concept to grasp, grasp sometimes, the, the area of suitability. I'm talking about millions of, of dollars per year and millions of kilograms of coffee. So it's far from insignificant. So where is that potential coming from? It's coming from two places using highly suitable land more efficiently. So there are plenty of places for growing coffee which don't grow coffee at the present time. And also, there's a huge potential for migration to areas upslope of where they're presently grown. So to areas that are cooler and wetter than th th those areas that will disappear. Now the burning question that many people come, come to, well, that's fine, but that, that land is being used for other purposes. It may be forested, it may be a nature reserve, somebody may own that land. But what we see in Ethiopia, because of the way we've done the study, is that a lot of that land actually doesn't have a great value. 
and wood have more value if it grew coffee. But there's another bonus. Because for growing coffee in Ethiopia, you really need forest. So if you're growing forest, you're having an income, you're sinking carbon, you're mitigating, you're improving the environment, you're improving ecosystem services. So it's kind of a no-brainer. So how do we condense all this information down into products that people can actually understand and use uh, for, for, for appropriate decision-making? We have two, two main products. One is the strategy document. It's a document uh, designed for major decision-makers at the sort of government, NGO level. And that provides very specific details of what's going to happen across the coffee landscape across this century. On one side, there's a bigger scale picture, and on the other side, the 16 coffee areas, what will happen across each time period, what's the confidence in those things happening, and also, what's the model, what does the modeling uh, robustness look like? So here's a more detailed map, and this is now being scaled down to a sort of 200 kilometer hexagon. And this map is basically what it looks like in the present day. And you can see we've designed the study in such a way where we know which areas are most suitable, which areas are least suitable. And we've also mapped on deforestation. Because in some cases, climate change isn't going to be the major impact factor. It will be deforestation. And you can see why that's the case. On this slide, you can see areas that will be drastically impacted by climate change, but they're also the areas that are being mostly, most badly impacted by deforestation. So there's a double negative influence. So what we'll see in Ethiopia is a drastic change in the landscape. We'll also see some origins, some terroirs disappear by the end of the century, including, but it's highly likely that hurrah will not be producing much coffee by the end of the century or even by mid-century. And there will be origins that we, uh, as consumers, haven't even experienced uh, that will disappear within, potentially disappear within the next 20, 30 years. To make the information more accessible, what we've done is also produced a coffee atlas. This is like a road atlas. It's the 40-page map book of the Ethiopian coffee landscape, and it provides decision makers with much more detail. So to give you an example, here's Geisha. And what you can see is the dark blue area is where there's forest. The light blue is where there's no forest. The green would be where it's a, it's a great place to grow coffee. So if you wanted to have the resources to, to reforest an area, what the atlas does and what the resources do is tells you exactly where to make your investment. Let's just sum up by looking at some of the lessons that we've learned. One of the hopes, the aspirations, that we would find within the landscape something that would provide a quick fix for climate resilience, something a drought tolerant Arabica, for example. We have two main genetic groups in Ethiopia. Most of our cultivated Arabica came through Harar, then Yemen, and then out to the world. During this movement, if it had the ability to acquire any drought resilience, it would have happened during this migration out of the forests of southeast Ethiopia. So what I'm saying is that we've probably got the best out of Ethiopia in terms of drought resilience. And drought resilience is one of the major issues. And then, when, of course, we've got the so-called wilds, the geishas, the Rume Sudans, 
So we've got that side of, of the genetic uh, makeup. And I think it's not a huge amount, but as I say, we've probably got the best uh, there, there is from Ethiopia. In terms of climate resilience, not in terms of disease or pest tolerance. So one of the things you see when you talk to farmers about resilience specifically, and particularly those farmers that have so-called drought resilient or climate resilient cultivars, is they don't actually give the farmer very much in terms of resilience. Surprisingly, and something that surprised me was that it was the on-farm adaptation which gave the best results for, for farmers. So things like mulching, proper forest management. The farmers were happy with some rather simple cost-effective interventions that made a huge difference uh, to, to, to their livelihoods. Another sort of myth that's already been sort of busted in a way is that um, are actually Arabica's not that um, sensitive. It's quite a robust little plant. Even early planters said they were surprised at the places coffee was able to grow. These are climate these, sorry, these rainfall profiles for Ethiopia, you can see there's a huge variation in the amount of rain that falls in the different coffee-growing regions. We also experienced coffee growing in areas with 34 up to 35 degrees centigrade for several hours of the day. And these plants were fine as long as there was enough water in the ground. That said, it's clear, and this was something that was recognized a long time ago, that actually a lot of the world's coffee isn't growing in the most suitable places. And that would include parts of Brazil and Vietnam, for example. And it's those places that are least suitable which will be impacted uh, the, the most uh, and within the most recent time frame by climate change. So they are closest to the tipping point. They are closer to the tipping point than areas, uh, many areas um, elsewhere in the world. One of the other things we realized that climate change is incredibly complicated. And I think if we need to move forward, we need to make better connections. At the moment, I see there's a big disconnect between what's going on in the research community. People might know something about soils or physiology, but they don't know anything about coffee or vice versa. So if we need to move forward, we need to make these connections so we, we, can, we can bring all these disciplines together to answer the specific questions. So for Ethiopia, I think we can answer those two questions I posed right at the very beginning. In a global context, if we did the same thing for the major coffee-producing countries of the world, and I think we could do that within a decade, we would be in a uh, very advantageous position to understand what the future looks like and exactly what we need to do. In, in summary, I don't think we're, we're facing a grisly Armageddon. We're facing, some, we're facing a challenge. Uh, we're facing a, a potentially sustainable future for coffee, but, this is a big but, we have to do the right work now. And once that work's available and we're happy with it, to make the right decisions. Thank you very much. That was Aaron Davis speaking at Rico Symposium in 2013 and later in 2016. That's it for the podcast this week. Special thanks to Peter Giuliano for joining us for this week's episode. 
Aaron Davis is traveling in Ethiopia this week, so he couldn't join us for the show. Check out Aaron's article, Mapping Ethiopia, in the new issue of 25 Magazine, just published. If you'll be at Rico Symposium or the Specialty Coffee Expo this week, we look forward to seeing you. Stay tuned to the podcast for episodes from both events coming in the next few weeks. This has been the SCA Podcast, brought to you by the members of the Specialty Coffee Association. I'm Vicente Partida. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week.